Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. to admire a lot of things about her but um you know as i said in the book i think that when she refused to go with him it was probably the worst mistake in her life that's journal of the american revolution contributor and author nancy rubin stewart discussing her new article on deborah reed wife of benjamin franklin and she's our guest today i'm brady kreitzer and this is dispatches this episode of dispatches is sponsored by simon and schuster Publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author Nancy Rubin Stewart. She's the writer of the book Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the Other Women Behind the Founding Fathers. You've probably seen her book on the shelves, but she's recently wrote an article for the Journal of the American Revolution focusing on the marriage of Benjamin Franklin and Deborah Reed. This was a wonderful article uh, that highlighted some of the, I guess, negative aspects, if you would, of Benjamin Franklin's pretty impressive life. Uh, The fact that he was working around the clock and gone from the country from so long, had a terrible cost on his marriage. And you can hear all about it uh, in Nancy's interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Nancy Rubin Stewart. Nancy Rubin Stewart, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background. Uh, okay. Well, I often write about women in social history. And uh, lately, my, my books have been about colonial women. And uh, so um, after the last book, which was um, uh, called Defiant Brides, I became very interested in Ben Franklin and his relationship to his wife, Deborah Reed, and uh, did some research on it, <laughs> spent a long time on it, and uh, eventually wrote uh, Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the other women behind the founding father. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, you know, it, there's there's um, been a lot of talk about women and marriage and monogamy and and all, and it just seemed that. And I, I should mention, I started this book 26 years ago, and nobody was really interested in Deborah Reed at the time um, because the earlier books always dismissed her and thought she was provincial or ignorant and not good looking. So uh, it's been a project for a long time. But around 2016, I started to think, well, really, there's so much more attention now to women's history, that this seemed to be a good time to write the book. And, um, you know, and I was always, I always begin a book with a question. And my question was, um, which is what, which is how I wrote this article, uh, which comes from the book, um, what I did not understand their marriage. <laughs> I did not understand how they could have been married and then uh, really apart from each other for what ended up being 15 years. 
Tell us about the early life of Deborah Reed. Um, well, we only know um, a small amount, really. We know that she emigrated with her parents in 1711 from Birmingham, England. Um, she could have not been more than about five or six years of age, and apparently it was a traumatic voyage, as the voyages and those sea voyages were in those days. And uh, because much later, um, she, she uh, never wants to get on a ship again. Um, what we do know is her father was a carpenter, um, moderately prosperous, a middle-class carpenter in Philadelphia. And her mother, Sarah White Reed, um, had several children. Uh, we think Deborah was the oldest, probably the oldest one, not for sure. Um, but we do know that, that Mrs. Reed uh, was very busy with a salve and ointment business, which she was fairly successful with. She was a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, they, they belonged to the, the uh, Christ Church in Philadelphia. Um, Deborah had many friends and was quite outgoing and social. So th- those are what we know. We, we uh, believe, because her mother had this, this little business, that probably uh, young Deborah helped her with it because later Deborah becomes a very skilled sort of a bookkeeper and record keeper and you know, sort of a financial uh, sort of background person. So that's what we know about her uh, up until the time she uh, meets Ben. How did she meet Benjamin Franklin? Well, uh, according to Ben's autobiography, which is the only information we have, uh, he had just arrived as sort of a fugitive from Boston. He, uh, he was unhappy being a printer's apprentice to his, his older brother, and he fled finally, and he arrived in Philadelphia after almost two weeks of traveling. He was uh, dirty, hungry, um, pretty unkempt, and he was walking down the street uh, eating one roll and carrying two others under his arm when he saw Deborah. And, and uh, he, according to his autobiography, she just giggled at him. She thought he was made a ridiculous figure, which he admits he probably did. That was the first meeting. Um, it's some months later when he's he's uh, already has a job and he's well-groomed and he, his trunk of clothes had come from Boston and and so on, that he arrives at uh, her father, John Reed's house, and asks if he can rent a room. And some months later, uh, he says he began to, to court her, uh, that he admired her, respected her, and he thought that she must have admired and respected him, and so he made some courtship to her, and they became betrothed. So this is, <laughs> this is um, what we know in the beginning. We don't have any writings from Deborah from this period, I have to tell you that. So a lot of this depends on, on um, Ben's own descriptions. You say in their article that their marriage was unconventional in their early years. Talk about their engagement and their early marriage. Oh, it, was, it was plenty of unconventionality, that's for sure. First of all, they were engaged, and then he was, uh, he was supposed to go to England. Uh, a, a deputy governor of, of Pennsylvania had sort of taken him under his wing and sent him off to England promising to pay the fare and promising to send letters of credit and so on and introduce him to friends. And he'd buy his printing equipment and young Ben would come back with that. And then he would establish his own printing company. Uh, none of that happened. So Ben found himself in England penniless uh, and had to get a job. But uh, before that, I should just say that, that uh, John Reed had died rather suddenly and Deb and Deborah's mother, uh, Mrs. Reed, said to them, you, you folks can't get married, you're too young, 
um, you're still only 18 and he's going off to England, so we better wait till he gets back. And so Ben did promise uh, that he would write to Deborah, and when he came back, you know, he would he would marry her. Well, while he was in England, he had many adventures, um, and but and and some with women. But uh, he wrote to her only one letter in the 18 months he was there, uh, and which you know, this is from 1724 to 1726. And he wrote to her, and he he said he didn't know when he was going to come back. So the story goes that he. This in greatly upset Deborah, of course. It was sort of leaving her just floating around without knowing what if he was ever going to come back. And Mrs. Reed and her friends prevailed upon her to accept, you know, other suitors. And so Deborah did. And, and then Deborah did get married. She married uh, an Englishman who had emigrated to Philadelphia. He was a potter. Uh, his name was John Rogers. And within a couple of months, she learned that he was married. He had a wife in England. And that was the end of the marriage as far as Deborah was concerned. Back she went to her mother, um, would not take his name anymore. But meanwhile, Rogers had acquired her dowry, squandered it, um, got into death, and ultimately fled to the West Indies. Uh, And then rumors came back that um, he was killed in a brawl, but there was no way to you know, verify that. So that left Deborah neither single nor married and unable to get a divorce and nothing could be proven. Um, And so by the time Ben came back, he returned from England, from London, and in 1726, and Deborah was a changed person. She was unhappy, depressed, not social, quite morose. All of her friends, of course, were getting married by then, having children and so on. And Deborah could not because she couldn't get a divorce and she didn't know that she was single or married and <clears throat> it was a strange situation for her. So four years went by and during that time Ben courted other women. None of them uh none of the none of her none of those fathers wanted him claiming <clears throat> that he was would be a poor provider because printers didn't make much money. But in seventeen thirty and by then he had his own printing company uh in Jul- in uh, August he talked to Mrs. Reed. He said he felt guilty about Deborah. And uh, Mrs. Reed said, I feel guilty too because I pushed her into getting married. So all we know at that point is in Ben Wright's in his autobiography, I took her to wife on September 1st, 1730. Now, of course, it was a common law marriage. So they never were legally married. They couldn't be. They could be married in the church. They couldn't be married anywhere. So common law marriages were not unheard of, but they were unusual. So it was, a, it was a strange way to begin a marriage. But Deborah was very happy about that at first, and she threw herself into helping Ben. She uh, took his stationery shop, and she turned it into a general store. She was, as I say, a pretty good saleswoman, and really pitched in. Uh, and, you know, he says later that she it was lucky for him that he had such a thrifty wife, um, that she really was a fortune to him. So we know she was really a good helpmate. But Six months into the marriage, one day he arrived home with a bundle, a blanket, and inside that blanket was a, a little baby boy. <laughs> Deborah was flabbergasted. Uh, and this was his son, William. They called him Billy. Well, you can imagine, Deborah, did, <laughs> she, she didn't know what to say. She certainly didn't expect that he would have been cavorting with 
other women. And anyway, where was the mother? So this is how the marriage began. Okay, we have a number of unconventional, you know, strains in this marriage to start with. What were the biggest obstacles that they faced early on? Well, uh, first of all, there was, you know, Ben's, you know, enormous ambition and, you know, his desire to, to become very successful and be a model citizen. And he worked very hard at that. And Deborah was by his side as his helpmate. She seemed to have done everything. He does eventually become the postmaster of uh, Philadelphia, of Pennsylvania. She, she evidently becomes helping him with that, too. So and so they, she's bringing up this child, Billy, that she didn't was not her child and just resentful about that. Um, and uh, so it's the story of, of a young couple on their way up um, and, and they do very well. Um, you know, along the way, um, there seemed to be, you know, some parting of the way. Obviously, Ben becomes more and more interested and involved in science um, and experimentation. Deborah is not uh, an, is not an intellectual. She's intelligent, as it turns out, far more so uh, than the historians have given her credit for, and and probably quite good uh, as a uh, you know is a sort of a I'll say a bookkeeper, a sort of accountant, salesperson kind of of of, of uh, individual. But you know, there's already uh, there's already a growing gap between them. Now in those days. We can say, you know, today that would probably not be great, but in those days, women were to be in the home and hearth. They weren't to be involved in these things. So, um, you know, we we don't really, they seem to be very happy. He wrote poems about her uh, in, this, in the early 1740s about how she wasn't beautiful, but she was a wonderful maid and she was devoted and talented and helped him and she took a lot of burdens off of him. And there's a lot of praise about that. So, you know, there, there are these, these aspects. And she does not have another child, by the way. She has finally one little son. And unfortunately, when he's four years of age, he dies of smallpox. Um, even though Ben wanted to inoculate him and had written to people to, in this paper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, to do so. But he, he couldn't inoculate little, his little son because his son had dysentery. So we have... Her bringing up this Billy, who is difficult and she doesn't want to. We have the loss of the little child. We have the, this young couple striving to, to make it financially and to you know, become and Ben's vaunting ambition. I think those are a lot of, uh, a lot of strains and a lot of stresses and a lot of uh, you know, things to keep together to keep, uh, to keep going as a happy couple. Talk about the toll that Franklin's absences took on Deborah. Yeah, let me just say that in terms of um, these marriages, the first when he first uh, was asked by the assembly to go to England to um, try to get the pens to pay their taxes for the colony, um, he was shocked that Deborah refused to go with him. And there are, you know, questions about that, um, why she didn't go, and many theories as to whether she felt inferior to be with the urbane British, or maybe she was just comfortable at home, or maybe she was traumatized by that sea voyage. So that was supposed to be a short voyage. He thought he'd be back within six months to a year, and it ended up being five years. Now he lived with a middle-class widow uh, in a a townhouse uh, in Craven Street in London. And as time goes on, he becomes more and more involved with her, 
In fact, one of his friends writes to Deborah and says, you better come sail over here and protect your interests. It's a direct quote. Um, but Deborah still refused. So these five years, the first voyage, the first time he's away, there are affectionate letters between them. He sends her lots of English goods and presents, and she sends him a lot of American commodities and so on, and she fills him in on what's going on uh, in uh, colonial America. Um, and he continues with his suit against the pens, but he does not come home. And he keeps telling her he's going to maybe come home in six months, or five years goes by. So when he comes home five years later, you know, they've already, by the way, they already had long since had a child, another child, a daughter, Sally. So Sally is now, you know, a teenager. And um, it's like a whole other world for him. But he doesn't like being back. He really wants to be in England. Now, Jebra, you can imagine how she felt after waiting for him for five years. So... He promises her because she's very upset that he's going to stay and he's going to build them a new house. And he starts the house and he designs it and the construction begins. And then the assembly says to him, you really have to go back because of the pens. And now things are beginning to beginning to heat up with the American colonies. We're now into 1763, just beginning. But that isn't what why he goes back to start with, although it, it involves him quite a bit later. So he goes back again because she refuses to go with him and he makes her promise to write only cheerful letters. Obviously, he said something to her like, and we don't have that original letter. He must have said to her, I don't, if you're not going to come with me, don't complain um, and write me only cheerful letters. So she does try to write him only cheerful letters. And you can see the strain in her. In this period of time, we do have her letters for the next 10 years. And he keeps telling her, you know, he's going to come back. But of course, as the revolution heats up, he, he soon is the, the agent for all the colonies, not just Pennsylvania. And now we're talking about trying to damp down the, the rage and the protests and everything else that are happening in America in the beginnings of the stirrings, stirring the flames of the, what will become the American Revolution. And Deborah has, has her daughter, Sally, who she finally agrees to let marry, uh, her friend, who is an English emigre and a bit of a debtor, and this is another strain in their marriage because Franklin doesn't want this this young man who is a debtor. After all, he's famous for being thrifty and being wise about money. How incredibly embarrassing. But Deborah allows her daughter Sally to marry him. So this is another whole issue. And there are moments where they stop writing to each other when they're angry with each other. Um, and he's quite angry about that marriage. Eventually, he does reconcile to it. Um, but meanwhile, Deborah's been left with the house. It's half done, and she she has to supervise the rest of the construction of the house. Now, she's a good businesswoman, and she sees that there's an opportunity to buy a lot of land that would be adjacent to the house, and she does. She expands, therefore expands it, spends you know quite a bit of money, but he ultimately approves. But, you know, there's a lot of controversy, there's political controversy that's going on about him. There are a lot, he has a lot of enemies. There are malicious rumors he supported the Stamp Act. That wasn't true. A mob comes to the house uh, threatening to tear it down. Uh, she and a, a brother defended at gunpoint one night, and then his followers, his allies, come and chase away the mob. So it's pretty dramatic. And she continually laments to him, you know, she has to make all these decisions, which a colonial woman wasn't supposed to do. These were men's jobs and men's things. And she finishes that house. 
um, somehow or other, and she does get that land. But she is, um, and her daughter finally has a child. But meanwhile, there's Mrs. Stevenson, who he lives with in England, and it's, she's much more than a landlady. She has nursed him when he's sick. She's outfitted him in clothes. They've obviously socialized a lot. Most, most of their British friends consider them an item. Now, what she does about it is not clear, other than she is very cordial when they exchange a few pleasantries via mail. And, um, you know, she must just somehow accept it or look the other way. It's a, it's a terrible thing for her. For 10 years, she's always been in love with Sam. So she eventually becomes ill. Um, she has a stroke. Meanwhile, his, quote, English family, which is Margaret Stevenson, the woman he's lived with now for way over 10 years, um, and her daughter, Polly, he considers them her English family. He even gives away Polly for her wedding. And then when the two women, daughter Sally, Ben's daughter Sally, and, the, and Margaret's daughter, Polly, they a bit of a competition about their, their children in the mail. Um, so it's really very heartbreaking for Deborah. Um, and Deborah has a stroke, and Ben is negotiating with Parliament with the Whigs to try to get them to tamp down this whole idea of the revolution and to placate the Americans and so on. He's not he's negotiating tirelessly about that. Um, he does finally become fed up with England when when they accuse him of things that he didn't do, and. Yet he does not return for that last year when Deborah is so very ill. Uh, and, you know, she's longing for him and he keeps writing letters saying, you know, I'll, maybe I'll come back in the, when the spring boats and maybe I'll come back in the fall boats. He keeps holding out hope. And yet, and yet he doesn't return. And she dies alone in Philadelphia. And it's Billy, it's Billy, the son who, who writes to, him, to, to Franklin Ben and says later, you know, she just really wanted to see you. He implies that because Ben didn't see her ultimately, that she really does, you know, heartbroken. What part of Deborah's struggles did you find to be especially difficult? Well, I mean, you know, in one sense, you have to admire her because she's pretty brave um, and she's pretty, um, you know, she's filled with energy. She's a real workhorse. She um, she does so many things. Uh, takes care of his relatives who come and stay. Um, she's you know runs this busy household. She has these children to raise. She's uh, involved uh, nursing neighbors. She's she's active, <clears throat> still active, <clears throat> with his affairs until she becomes ill. His financial affairs. So you know you have to admire a lot of things about her. But, um, you know, as I said in the book, I think that when she refused to go with him, it was probably the worst mistake in her life. And yes, my heart goes out to her. And, you know, you read these letters between them and, you know, they're very affectionate, both of them to each other. But it's almost as if there's a, a, a understanding that it's sort of a sort of a divorce or legal separation, I guess, the way we think of it today, where they're amiable, but... You know, it's just not working, and maybe it'll work when he comes back, but of course he doesn't get back in time. So there's a lot, I feel a lot of poignancy, both for her and for him, um, because, you know, this is a very difficult thing. And you have to also remember that letters don't go back and forth on a regular basis. Some are lost at sea, so don't get delivered, but we, there, are, there are gaps. And when they communicate to each other, we don't 
always get the answers that one has asked the other. So, and that must have been very frustrating for them as well. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Thank you. Well, I think that what it does is it points out that the revolution, uh, you know, we read about in the history books that it's just sort of a slam dunk and people wanted it and that was it and everybody went for it. It's not true. Um, There's a lot of doubt and a lot of questions and a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. Um, And I think that comes out uh, in here, but I think even perhaps more importantly is the human um, difficulties and the challenges uh, that, in this case, it's Deborah and it's, and it's Ben Franklin, uh, have to make both personal and maybe philosophical and, and maybe spiritual as to what is more important. Uh, and for Ben, uh, America and the revolution were even more important than any personal relationship. So... I think that we, we may, you know, we may think of Ben as an icon of virtue. Um, there's some missteps that uh, certainly talked about in, in the article, um, but uh, he's a human being. He's flawed like the rest of us, um, and things really are not that much different um, today uh, than they were then. We still have these, these personal challenges that will often get in the way or obfuscate in some way another goal, in this case, a political one. Nancy Rubin-Stewart, thanks again. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>